slowly coming to a conclusion in these studies. Tonight is, of course, our eighth study as we consider celebrations. Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So, the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. And verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. May God add a blessing to his word. Very quickly, Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We pray for your help as we explore them briefly in these moments. In Christ's name, Amen. The clock says 6.15. Hallelujah. Is that right? When I first came to this church, Herbie drew me to one side and says, Brother, the clock is always the right time. The clock. And so we're okay. It's 6.15.
Is that right? No, 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 no. Don't go back on your word, Herb. It's, the clock is always right. The clock is always right. That's all right. Don't worry. Just a few thoughts. Lewis Smedes, in his book, Sex in the Real World, wrote, I quote, Some people still make promises and keep those they make. When they do, they help make life around them more stably human. Promise-keeping is a powerful means of grace in a time when people hardly depend on each other to remember and live by their word. Psalm 15 proclaims the qualities of the steadfast, God-honoring person who enjoys fellowship with our promise-keeping Lord. This individual keeps his or her promises even when it hurts. Psalm 15 verse 4, the God-honoring person keeps his or her promises even when it hurts. In chapter 3 of Ruth, there on the threshing floor, Boaz made a promise to Ruth. A promise to redeem her if the nearer kinsman would not. Brothers and sisters, be assured, this was a promise that potentially would hurt Boaz. This was a promise that demanded a love beyond the letter of the law. A promise that this steadfast God-honoring person was to keep. Boaz was one of those rare individuals who was sure to keep his promise, keep his word, even if it hurt. My friends, you and I, are we the kinds of people who keep our promises even when they hurt? One point of particular importance now comes to light in Ruth chapter 4. Verse 13, we just touched on it. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. We must remember here that the Leverite duty did not always fully imply full marriage. In the case of Judah and Tamar beforehand, there was a Leverite duty, but there was no marriage. Boaz could very well have acted, remember, as a goel towards Ruth without entering full marriage. He could have simply acted as her levir until the child was born. But the fact that Boaz doesn't do that and enters into full marriage with Ruth implies arguably at least two things. Firstly, that he was not, that he wasn't already married. Perhaps he was a widower. Uh, it does imply that he probably was childless himself. Even though we do know he was an older man. Chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that. But it also implies for me at least, the old romantic that I am, that he actually truly loved 
Ruth. In such a small space of time, Ruth had made such an impression upon this man that he truly loved her. He could have acted as Levere and walked away. But he went all the way. And he promised on the threshing floor, I will become your Goel, so to speak. I will marry you. And he went through with his promise. And we read the, uh, a wonderful scene. As the news broke from Boaz, there in verse 9, the broke with the elders and all the people uh, were called to witness what was going on. And we have here, uh, without question, a celebration. Verses 11 through 12. A celebration was in the air because Boaz was marrying Ruth. The mood of chapter 4 is one of joy. Two, very quickly, if I may. I don't know why I'm looking at that daft clock. Two significant facts. Two significant facts. Firstly, it is significant that the elders and all the people were involved in the celebration of marriage. This is an aspect of marriage that should not be lost. In our day, marriage is coming to be thought of by some as only a private alliance between two people. To be made and even terminated as they wish by their private choice. I think this is sad. Don't you? Because society, community at large, has an interest in the formation of a newly married couple. In fact, society community is dependent upon the success of newly married couples. But increasingly in 21st century Britain, people are stealing away to get married privately. I find that sad. Don't you? Not to mention those who perhaps don't even bother with marriage at all. <laughs> Bypass the whole process and just simply cohabitate or something similar. This was a public celebration. The elders, all the people at the town gate it seems, entered into this celebration because friends, marriage matters to our society. It matters to our community. And I consider it significant that part of the breakdown of our communities, part of the breakdown of our society today, is because uh, marriages are breaking down. Marriages are becoming increasingly isolated and insular. We as Christians, of course, have a responsibility both to enter into marital celebrations and support those marital celebrations. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, marriage is more than your love for each other. It is, he says, a higher destiny and power, for it is God's holy ordinance. In your love, you see only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Wow. Interesting. He goes on, your love is your own private possession, but marriage is something more than personal. It is a status, an office that joins you together in the sight of God and of man. And so marriage in the sight of God, yes, there's a personal dynamic, of course, to coming together as one. But it's social. And the success of our society and the success of our communities depend upon the success of our marriages. And how sad it is that the ordinance of Christian marriage is under attack in these days like arguably never, ever before. I hear regularly the expression, why do I need to get married? I hear regularly the expression, why do I need to bother with a piece of paper? And the answer is in terms of responsibility to each other, to one's family, and to society. The elders speaks of a religious dynamic, doesn't it? And the people of the town celebrated together the public witness of Christian marriage matters. The second significant fact is, notice how the people respond as they celebrate. How do they respond? Did you notice? Verses 11 through 12, they responded with a prayer of blessing. A prayer of blessing. How much this little book of Ruth throbs with the life of prayer. Chapter 1 verse 8, we have Naomi's response to the news from Bethlehem. That the famine had come to an end. And she responded in a a prayer of praise. Chapter 2 verse 4. The routine greeting of Boaz towards his workers was in point a prayer. A blessing upon his workers. Chapter 2 verse 12. Boaz's generous welcome to Ruth to glean in the fields was made by way of a prayer. Chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi prayed in thanksgiving, in glad reaction to Ruth's return home concerning her news about Boaz. Chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz responded to Ruth's nighttime visit with a prayer. And now, all the people responded in prayer. A prayer of blessing at the gate for this couple newly engaged. Isn't that wonderful? A little book in the Old Testament of just four chapters permeates, throbs with prayer. Is that a coincidence, do you think? 
I don't think so. Indeed, throughout the book, the good book, the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, prayer, 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 over and over and over and over again, we are reminded that for the people of God, for the child of God, our lives should be permeated with prayer, saturated in prayer. Every aspect of our life should be filled with prayer. From misery to joy, permeating prayer. From the routine to the extraordinary prayer. From daily work to social intercourse, prayer, as well as the very private moments and public moments. Every aspect of Ruth's life, Boaz's life, throughout the scriptures, it's prayer. I said, within our societies, marriage, Christian marriage, marriage in general is under significant attack. Within the confines of the Christian church, prayer is under significant attack. The enemy is not stupid. If he knows that he knows that if he manages to, to pull the rug of prayer from underneath the feet of God's people, he's made a significant advance. Boy, oh boy. Might I suggest in love that the enemy has succeeded to do just that in so many parts of church and Christian life here in the United Kingdom in these days. He's pulled from underneath the feet of God's people the rug of prayer. And he's made a significant impact. The people celebrated the pending marriage of Boaz and Ruth with a prayer of blessing. And we could go into the detail, but time doesn't allow, and you're beginning to nod off some of you at least anyhow. Um, but the blessing's quite wonderful, really. At the heart of it, the prayer is that God might so bless your offspring <laughs> that your offspring becomes significant for the furtherance of God's kingdom through His people. That's the crux of it. Names are mentioned there, of course. But at the crux of it, they're praying, bless their offspring so much so the God's people Israel, and indeed the furtherance of God's kingdom is blessed through that offspring. What a beautiful prayer. And hey-ho, did not God bless? Did not God bless that prayer? Did not Ruth the Moabites become so grafted into the people of God Israel that she even become part of the messianic line of David? Yes, yes, that's what's being prayed, and that's what God answered. Wow, and even tonight we sit here, if you like, as beneficiaries of this very prayer. Isn't that something? Boy, oh boy, it was a prayer in context, granted a prayer before Boaz and Ruth uh, were, were, were to marry and have children. It was a prayer in context, but oh, the ramifications of that contextual prayer. 
And we tonight are here, beneficiaries of this prayer. Wow. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And maybe in days or, or weeks or, or months or, or years hence, others might come to this place of Christian worship, the beneficiaries of your prayer and mine. Please, God, it happens. Please, God, it happens. So two simple thoughts. Firstly, my friends, our society, our community is breaking down rapidly before our very eyes. We ought not be surprised. It is a sign of the times. At the heart of that is the enemy's efforts to call into question the beautiful ordinance of God-given Christian marriage. I advocate it. Nothing quite like it. And we need to stand up for it in these days. And my friends, our church is under attack. Its witness is under attack. And the enemy is endeavoring, even as I speak, to pull the rug of prayer from underneath this church. Oh yeah. If he succeeds... We won't have anywhere near another 130 years. Months. Weeks. Even. He must not. We must stand. And we must gather together to make every opportunity to pray. Every area, every aspect of our lives. Saturate them in prayer. Individually, of course. Our devotional times as individual Christians are integral to our Christian lives, our Christian experiences, our progress, uh, our progression as Christians, and corporately as a church. Father, we thank you for this challenge. Nothing new about it, Lord, if truth be known. We are aware of the enemy's tactics. What we need, Father, is for your church to stand up for what is right. That includes the Institute of Christian Marriage. Forgive us, Lord, we've been too silent too long. And the place of prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer, Lord, 21st century society has encroached upon us in such a way that the place of prayer has been squeezed out. Slowly, surely, subtly squeezed out. Oh, Father, bring your people to prayer once again. In the name of Jesus. Amen.